0: hello and welcome to the weekly investor insights call throughout the call all participants will be in a listen only mode just to remind you this conference call is being recorded today i'm pleased to present gavin ralston and phil chandler please go ahead with your meeting
1: hello and welcome from me uh this is gavin ralston welcome to this week's investor call and podcast Um, i'm very pleased to have with us um, phil chandler from the multi-asset team who can update us on views and positioning across a wide range of asset classes. So markets are slightly happier than they were a week ago. Equities recovered on average about 2.5% last week, and bond yields and the dollar have both been stable. This better tone was particularly in reaction to more conciliatory remarks from President Trump on the prospects for a trade agreement with China, although since then, President Xi has reciprocated with more hostile comments. Over the month of October, markets were obviously down, uh, sharply an average of 7%. Uh, The UK was the most resilient, perhaps because it incorporated so much bad news already. Japan fell the most, the US in the middle. We commented last week, in fact in the last couple of weeks, on the number of US companies reporting quarterly earnings and the number of them that have been disappointing. This trend has continued in the last few days. I draw particular attention to the Apple results. Uh, As a result, over the month of October, several of the large U.S. tech names have fallen sharply, for example, Netflix and Amazon, which were both down more than 20%. At the macro level, the strong U.S. growth story continues. On Friday, we had employment data, which was higher than expected, and obvious feed-through to faster wage inflation. Average hourly earnings growth in the U.S. is now more than 3%. As a result, markets are fully expecting a further rate rise from the Fed in December. By contrast, growth indicators from Europe have been weaker. So Phil, turning to you, the last time you were on the call three weeks ago, you said that the multi-asset team were not, at least for the moment, taking overall risk off the table. You held your nerve then. Would you say the same today after we've seen some recovery in risk assets? So that's correct. For most portfolios, we maintained
0: positions. We didn't... Uh, we had our nerve, as you say. There were some of the total return portfolios which we de-risked slightly just to manage the draw down risks consistent with the objectives for those portfolios. But as you say, we didn't de-risk significantly. The question now is what do we do going forwards? Uh, we are going into our investment meetings next week, so we'll see what comes out of that. But the, the, sort of the, the starting position we have at the moment is that we should be looking to... Maybe take some chips off the table if we get a rebound up towards the highs which we saw a couple of months ago.
1: So, give us some context in terms of how you're positioned in equities today relative to where you were at the start of the year.
0: So, if you look at, for example, the Diversified Growth Fund, DGF, there, at the start of the year, we were in the sort of um, low to mid 40s in terms of an exit percentage, let's say 43%. Uh, We reduced down to a low of around about 37, uh, reducing risk in the beginning of the year, concerns that we had. Uh, We then increased risk over the summer. We saw opportunities. We saw the improvement evaluations after the February correction. We saw uh, strong cyclical growth, or optimism for an improvement in growth. And therefore, we went up to about 45. So 43, down to 37, back to 45. And more recently, we've been trimming. So we're now down to the low 40s, and like to trim a bit further. So that gives you an idea of the the range that we've been in. So equities today, probably reasonably similar to where they were at the start of the year, but on an intent to reduce slightly. But within that range of where we've been from this year, off the highs, but above the lows that we got to in Q1 of this year. Okay, and the other thing
1: that you do in multi-asset portfolios is to use hedges to mitigate downside risk? What, what sort of hedges do you have in place at the moment?
0: So the first thing is that within the risk, uh, the growth assets that we've had, we've made some changes and we can talk about the regional side of that in a minute. But one of the things we have done for some portfolios is to switch some of our equity risk into options and that therefore gives some sort of dynamism to the position sizing. But as you say, we believe very firmly in the importance of finding hedges for portfolios. We don't think that we can time every single twist and turn of the market. And therefore, we'd rather find the positions that we like and work out the hedges that go with them. And if you think about those risks that are out there at the moment, there's a clear risk in terms of tightening liquidity in the U.S. As inflation has uh, been rising and the Fed is hiking rates. And for us, we find that being a little bit long dollars is a good hedge against that tightening U.S. liquidity. There's some risks on uh, sort of the trade side, and in particular around China, and therefore looking for hedges on the Asian side, the Singapore dollar at the moment, being underweight that, to assure that. Uh, there's risks in Europe, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, uh, and they're being short the Euro. So, so those are three FX trades. Another area we can find hedges is in duration. It's an area we've been largely avoiding recently over the last 15 months or so. We thought the bond yields looked very expensive. But as yields have risen, we've started to tentatively add a little bit of duration to portfolios. Not a huge amount. We still remain underweight, but we have started to add a little bit of duration as a hedge against the risk of, of further slowdown or disappointment in growth.
1: So if I can read across from that, the scenario you're looking to protect against is one in which U.S. rates are rising, the dollar is strong, and there's pressure on European currencies and on Asian currencies, perhaps also undermined by further problems with trade. Talks between the U.S. and China. Yes, that's certainly a risk. And you, we, we talked about um, you mentioned Europe a moment ago, and we, we talked uh, again three weeks ago about shifting some of your equity exposure uh, away from the U.S. and emerging markets towards Europe and Japan, which I understand you you, you have done. Uh, Keith's latest monthly was pointing out that whereas global growth remains pretty strong. Uh, the balance is continuing to shift away from the rest of the world towards the U.S. Um, Can you talk about the the view that led you to uh, take a more positive position in Europe and Japan, especially in the context of of the clear momentum behind continuing growth in the U.S.? So as a reminder, the
0: positioning that we had for much of this year was a barbell to favor U.S. and emerging market assets. And what we did about a month ago was to start to rotate that and move it to a more diversified DM exposure. And the reason for that, whilst we still like emerging markets in terms of a valuation perspective, there's a very clear cyclical headwind in terms of a stronger dollar and the way that that can impinge upon EM growth and opportunities. And therefore, we'd rather have a more diversified DM exposure because, for example, whilst you would have some impact on uh, European assets, for example, from a stronger dollar, it's quite minimal compared to the impact on emerging markets. You still have that cyclical um, positivity without having that dollar problem. So that's why we like Europe. Clearly, there are risks within Europe. Uh, Italy is the one that hits the headlines at the moment, but as you say, growth in Europe has been disappointing. I think a lot of that growth disappointment has stemmed from a number of uh, specific one-off factors. So, for example, the German car manufacturing industry has been hit very significantly by changing regulations for emissions. We have new emissions testing procedures coming into place, and that's caused some problems with uh, sort of sign-off for different cars. They've had production uh, curtailed as a result it's hit retail sales. So there's been some sort of one-off there that have affected that. Uh, when that comes out of the numbers, we should see something of an improvement in European growth, but clearly there are some problems. And we can talk about Italy in a moment in terms of the significant fall that we've seen in confidence there. So there is definitely a risk within Europe, but on the plus side, a lot is in the price already. If you look at valuations of European equities, European assets versus other parts around the world, they do look attractive. So I think that a lot is in the price already, and that therefore gives us some sort of cushion. On the flip side, you saw the reaction of uh, the fangs in the US over the past couple of weeks as the market falls actually had suffered some of the biggest falls, which makes sense if you think
1: about the prices they've got to. So let's talk a bit more about Italy. Um, my understanding is you don't have any exposure to either Italian or other peripheral European bonds, but how do you see the standoff between Italy and the European Commission playing out? That's correct. So we've
0: got no exposure to peripheral debt within um, the Eurozone. Um, I think that so th- this is quite a big Week for Italy and for the budget, because you have a couple of different meetings of European finance ministers this week. One of the first things to say is that this, these meetings aren't just about Italy. These are discussing all of the Eurozone countries' budgets, and it's, whilst Italy is the only one who appears to be in breach of the budgetary rules, a number of the countries are actually quite close to them. And so if you think about it, from if you had, if this was purely a bureaucratic process, you know Is Italy within the rules or not? Yes, no, answer no. but we know this is a political process, and if you're a finance minister from a European country, you know that you yourself are potentially close to the limits there 's a limit to just how much you want to uh, stomp down on Italy, particularly in this environment where Italian growth ground to a halt, a halt in q three of last year, growth was zero, and you 've had a pretty precipitous fall in confidence surveys, so for example, if you look at Italian PMIs, the composite of both manufacturing and services, having been around about 55 last year, we saw a high of, I think it was 59 in January of this year, it's been a straight line down since then and uh, it's now into contractory territory at 49. So there's some politics involved here and the question is to what extent do finance ministers want to give themselves some future leeway versus constraining their own futures by being too tough on Italy today and setting a precedent that they have to keep to themselves.
1: And and what would be the trigger, uh, the point at which you'd go back into risky European debt like Italy? What would you be looking for? So I think
0: it's more of a cyclical argument as opposed to a valuation argument. I think we need to see an improvement in um, the European growth, and an improvement just in terms of the sort of politics within the countries that we're discussing here, as opposed to saying that there's a line in the sand that if yields get to a certain level, then we would you know, hold on those, just close our eyes and jump in. I think it's that cyclical catalyst that we require today rather than that valuation one.
1: So let's move back to the US. Uh, the midterm elections are later today. Can you perhaps talk first of all about what markets are pricing in in terms of results?
0: So that's the big focus for this week. Uh, as I think we all know, what the market is pricing, what the pollsters are saying is the Democrats to take the um, to take the House, the Republicans maintaining the Senate. If you look at the percentages, if you look at someone like Nate Silver of 538.com, I think he's probably one of the best pollsters. And from him, he's saying that there's about an 85% chance the Democrats take the House. So that's the the basic setup. And I largely agree with those numbers. If you think about it, there are some advantages for the Republicans in terms of the redistricting which they've done in recent years. That tends to favor them slightly. Uh, But at the same time, there's a number of quite negative things for the Republican Party, I think. Uh, If you think about um, the popularity of Trump at the moment, yes, it's had a rebound over the last six months, but nonetheless, it's still relatively low. Uh, The governing party tends to lose... Um, support in midterm elections as you have a sort of voter backlash against them. Uh, If you look on a micro level, I think the Democrats have picked some very good candidates that match in very well with their districts. Uh, They've picked some people with military background. Um, So that kind of thing has done very well, fundraising for Democrats.
1: All of these things point to the Democrats taking the House. And, what, and if, if the Democrats do better than markets are expecting in terms of both the House and possibly also the Senate, what, what's the market reaction to that? So I think given how clear the polls are at the moment, in the event that they are
0: proved right, there shouldn't be a significant knee market reaction today. I think that if we get what we're expecting, what we need to watch for is messaging from both the White House and the Democrat leadership in coming days as to how, um, how prepared they are to compromise. For example, you could have Trump coming out saying, it's clear the Democrats have won. I want to try and do some deals with them. I want to try and trade off infrastructure versus something else. That would be a very positive for markets. On the flip side, if Trump comes out and says some very inflammatory comments, then you could see the Democrat leadership digging in and deciding to just be very disruptive. So even in the consensus, what is there's no knee-jerk reaction, we have to then wait and see what happens in the coming weeks. In the two tails, in the case of a Democratic clean sweep taking both the House and the Senate, I think markets would interpret that negatively. On the flip side, if you have a Republican clean sweep maintaining both the House and the Senate, markets would see that positively. They would see the Republican clean sweep positively because it uh, brings up the hope for for the tax reform next year for the tax cuts. On the flip side, a Democrat clean sweep is probably going to result in a very gridlocked Congress. There'll be lots of things they'll try and push through In preparation for 2020. So, for example, on regulations, on the environment, on healthcare, on immigration, but all of them will be vetoed
1: by Trump. And based on what you were saying a moment ago, if there was a market reaction, a positive market reaction to the Republicans doing better than expected, those would be the sort of circumstances in which you might consider trimming. Risk assets further. So
0: if you remember, three weeks ago I said that we've had all this political noise at the moment, but underneath the surface the fundamentals are deteriorating, that we are seeing trade wars impinging upon global growth, we are seeing um, interest rate hikes and a tightening of liquidity impinging upon corporate earnings and valuations. So given that the fundamentals are deteriorating, it makes sense for a total return portfolio to start trimming its exposures on the growth side as we look forward into 2019. We're not talking
1: significant moves here, but we should be reducing exposures where the opportunities allow it. Let's just move briefly on to the bond markets, to developed market bonds. Where are you in terms of duration? So we still
0: remain underway duration, uh, a position we've had for some time now. If you look at our models, then we say we think the yields are getting much closer to fair value but we do think they have potentially a little bit further to go. And therefore, it makes sense to remain underweight duration. Having said that, we have, as I said earlier, added a little bit of duration back to portfolios, just taking advantage of the pickup that we've had in yields. And also, I know that there are some portfolios, for example, for Asian colleagues, where they've added some gold to portfolios as a bit of a duration proxy. So they are still remaining underweight duration, the same as all of us, but adding a little bit, the same as we have.
1: And then moving on to high yield and emerging markets debt.
0: So from a research perspective, we score high yield negatively, um, whereas emerging market debt local, we're reasonably neutral. Having said that, we have pretty light positioning in both of them, and indeed in emerging market dollar denominated debt. Uh, It's really just for cyclical reasons. From the high yield side, uh, the credit cycle is in a negative part of the sort of quadrant, you might call it. If you think about it, you have companies increasing leverage. You've had an increase in, in M&A activity, you've had an increase in buybacks over the last five years or so, that's negative for credit quality. And then on the the uh, local EMD side, just that sort of tightening of global liquidity conditions. Uh, the strong strength of the dollar has really been hitting emerging market currencies. You've therefore seen some emerging market central banks reacting by
1: hiking interest rates, and that's therefore undermined the local EMD side. So the pressure on emerging markets, currencies and emerging markets, bond markets remains pretty strong, negative pressure. It does.
0: I think part of the thing is that whilst there's been this improvement in valuations for emerging markets, I think that if we, um, you know, the luxury of a longer time horizon, you could argue that actually there's some clear opportunities there at the moment. We don't really feel um, encouraged, compelled to buy today. Mm.
1: Okay, uh, we're out of time for this week, so let me just pick up a couple of points that Phil has made. One is that uh, the multi-asset team are seeing a slow deterioration in fundamentals and therefore looking for opportunities to reduce uh, the risk level in portfolios, uh, but still have, for the time being, a healthy appetite for risk, but with some hedges in place in the currency markets in particular, uh, continuing to move away from the U.S., Uh, and from emerging markets with a slightly more positive position in in Europe and Japan than in the past, but certainly not at the moment tempted to buy back into emerging markets from a currency or bond market perspective. So that's it for this week. Uh, Phil, thank you very much for being with us again, and thank you all very much for listening.
0: This now concludes our conference call. Thank you all for attending. You may now disconnect your lines.